In this episode of Physics Twist, how a supernova changed the course of life on Earth, including the extinction of a very big, very scary marine animal. Why do zebras have stripes? It's not camouflage, it's not for mating, and it's not for cooling. So what could it be? And an amazing prehistoric discovery right here in Australia. Welcome to Physics Twist. This week in Science and Technology, the Australian science news podcast for the scientifically curious, both neophytes and crackerjacks alike. We are powered by Physics Education, leading science communicators in the education space. I am Duncan, and today I'm joined by special guest education director, Holly. Hi, Duncan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing pretty great, I think. Uh, Thanks for joining me today. Always a pleasure. Of course it is. And you were on here... Almost a year ago. Yeah, I think I did the first couple of episodes. Yes. Excellent. And then we got special guest Quill in to take over the reins. Yeah, yeah. Quill just, you know, usurped me and took over the physics twist (laughs) empire. She's very good. (laughs) The empire. The dynasty will last a thousand years. That's right. Uh, So also, not to forget to our dear listeners, um, we have an Instagram account, which is at physics twist. So please be sure to follow us on, on there for lots of updates and fun things that we like to post. All right, so uh, this really cool study came out this week that uh, linked stuff that happens in the sky to stuff that happened on the ground, Mm. uh, which is you might think it's a bit of a stretch, um, but there is some evidence that sort of suggests that a supernova, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, a big star exploding in a galaxy many, many miles away in this case, one that was about 150 million... No million. No million. No million. Just 150, just 150 light, light years. Light years. Yes. Yeah. 150 <laughs> light years away, uh, 2.6 million years ago. There's the million. Yes, there's the million. Um, that this supernova gave off a certain element, which is radioactive, which is iron 60, mm-hmm. um, which is a radioactive uh, form of iron yep. and is only produced in supernovas, yes. right? So there's all this iron 60 on Earth. And they've sort of dated it back to when it probably would have fell, fallen, yep. and they've dated it to 2.6 million years ago. Gotcha. Right, so that's so pretty So we know cool. that approximately 260, sorry, 2.6 million years ago, plus or minus 150 years-ish, that we know that there was a supernova. Yeah, we know there was this supernova because of the Iron 60. Yep. Now, another event happened 2.6 million years ago-ish. Mm-hmm. You know, again, we're sort of, you know, working this out based on what we call carbon dating of stuff. About 2.6 million years ago, about the same time as that supernova, the fossil records suggest that there was a mass extinction of species. Yep. Right? So that means that a whole bunch of animals died out. All at the same time. All at the same time. At the same time. Yes. As the supernova. As the supernova. Now, I'm not saying, like, the exact second that the supernova happened. Yeah. But within, you know, maybe 100 years of that supernova, we had a huge mass extinction. Yes. Right? So there's this mass extinction, and one of the animals that disappeared about 2.6 million years ago is the megalodon. We love the megalodon at Physics. We use it in a lot of our programs, specifically the Digging Dinosaurs one. Yes. And how big are they? They... 
range, they heard about 18 metres long. Yeah, which so, is, that's a lot of metres. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of two or three times bigger than a great white shark. Mm-hmm. I mean, not quite a blue whale. Yeah. Um, but they are, you know, if you've seen the movie Jaws, yeah. the, the big, big shark on Jaws is not equivalent to a great, right, great, great white shark. It's more like a, a little white, megalodon. Great white shark. It's just a little bit hard to talk. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it, that animal went extinct about 2.6 million years ago. Um, and so scientists are kind of saying, well, you know, there was this event with all this radioactive iron 60 mm-hmm. falling on the earth 2.6 million years ago. All of these animals yep. went extinct 2.6 million years ago. So how could this supernova cause the extinction? Mm. Now, what happens in this supernova is all these radioactive particles get rained down on Earth. Yeah. Now, most organisms aren't really affected. And it's because, you know, we get hit by radioactive particles every day, but we don't absorb enough of that radiation for it to make us sick. Yeah. But if you are a really, really big thing, you absorb more, more of, of those, those particles. Yeah which means that that radioactivity would have a bigger effect on your body Mm. and make you sicker. So it's it's kind of like of all these animals that died out 2.6 million years ago, they are, you know, hypothesising that they were the really, really big ones because they would have been more affected by this radiation. The bigger you are, the worse the effect is purely because you're absorbing more of that radiation, which the one that I'm seeing is called a muon, Mm -hmm. which is like an electron, but more massive, it's bigger, it's heavier, effectively. Yeah. And they're um, more penetrating of your body, basically. And so, yeah, like you said, they're hitting us all the time, not enough to affect us. And I think the thing, the other thing that would make a difference is when you look at the sort of cross-section of a human from the top down, it's like maybe half a metre squared of, of um, the area that could actually, like, be hit. But if you're a giant shark the size of a school bus, that's a lot more square metres. Yeah, completely. So, you know, you get hit by more radiation, you get sicker from that radiation and you potentially die out. Exactly. Um, So they ended up getting a lot of mutations, basically cancers, and possibly that's how they went extinct, which is wild. And it is an emphasis on the possibly. Yeah. You know, it's that whole idea that, you know, correlation isn't necessarily causation, Mm -hmm. but it seems too big of a coincidence to just have been oh, there's a supernova and, oh, all these animals died out. Yeah, precisely. I think the authors of the study, when I read it, they were very careful not to say that this was, you know, a direct link. Yeah. But, yeah, like you said, that's – I think the actual extinction was in within possibly a couple of thousand years maybe yep. at the most because that, that level of radiation would have been constantly just hitting all the time. Um, so, yeah, it's an amazing coincidence if not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I did also read that there could be lots of other factors that contribute to the extinction of the megalodon. So competition from other species. So there were lots of other shark species at the time. And also the fact that megalodons, like we said, are absolutely massive. And so because they're so massive, they have to take in a lot of resources, which means they're competing for, you know, this huge amount and they can't really do that very well. So they have to, the ecosystem would support a lower population density. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, in any mass extinction, it's the bigger things that die out first because mm. bigger things need more food. What other mass extinctions can you think of uh, where big things died out? Uh, um, I have no idea, Can't Duncan. think of any 65 no. million years ago, maybe? <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, when uh, the dinosaurs died out, we saw that the 
bigger dinosaurs became extinct earlier mm-hmm. than the smaller dinosaurs. And yeah. it makes 100% sense. If there's something that's stopping them from, you know, stopping plants from going, they can't eat food. Mm-hmm. So the smaller dinosaurs thrive because obviously they can get okay. enough food to survive. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It all makes sense. Yep. So I like this theory because like you said at the beginning, it brings together something from the sky, which is fantastic like a supernova and also something super cool like giant sharks yeah and i didn't really even know this field existed it's astrobiology yeah fantastic yeah it's like um what's the word abiogenesis thinking about how life would have begun from effectively nothing that Mm. that sort of stuff is quite related to that field which i find absolutely fascinating like they always talk about the primordial soup you know, how do these, like, amino acids join together to form living things, which is just fascinating. Super interesting. Super interesting. So, yeah, I want to do more astrobiology. Should we have more astrobiology stores, stories on Physics Twist? I think so. I think we should. Yeah. Okay, I'll do my best. Excellent. For the listeners. Now, this segment I call Viralgram. And Viralgram is all about stories that seem to be making their way around the net because people think they're a little bit funny. This one also comes from a friend of the podcast, Ed Yong, who we love. We love Ed Yong. Um, he writes for The Atlantic. He's a staff writer there. And um, it's all about why do zebras have stripes? And lots of people have been asking this for a very, very long time. Now, when I was thinking about this, and this is he also covers this in the article, I was thinking, like, one of the reasons could be camouflage, right? Way to blend into your environment. One possible theory behind the camouflage was the stripes might look like fields of dead logs or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's a possible theory, um, possibly as a way to stand out for uh, mating purposes yeah, as well. I think, I mean, we see that a lot in the animal kingdom yep, where, you know, different time. animals have different stripes. But I think that where that falls down is that women zebras and men zebras don't really have they different stripes. They pretty habits. much look the same, yeah. yeah. Apparently every stripe, um, sorry, every pattern on zebras is completely unique, kind of like your fingerprints. But, I mean, for all intents and purposes, there's no difference between males and females there. Um, so, yeah, that the mating idea can't really be true either. Another hypothesis, which is quite interesting, says that the black stripes on zebras heat up faster than the white ones which means it sort of sets up a circulating air current that cools the zebras. But they tested this and showed that the water, these, they use these water drums and they cloak them in zebra pelts, right, which is a pretty genius idea, mm-hmm. actually. Um, they looked at that and found out that the, um, the ones coated in zebra pelts heated up just as much as those covered in normal horse skins. It and would have been that really is, cool if it was true. It would be fantastic, <laughs> wasn't it? It would be great. Like there's... <laughs> Be cool to see this circulating air pattern mm. just going around a zebra. It's like that's amazing. Yep. Um, so there's this um, this guy called Tim Caro, Caro Caro. I'm going to go with Caro, who's a biologist at the University of California, Davis, who's written some books on this um, and really come to no <laughs> conclusions just yet. But did a study at a place called Hill Livery, which is a stable in in England that keeps zebras along with horses, and they did a really funny study where they cloaked uh, horses in zebra-striped coats, right? (laughs) (laughs) I I wish I'd been there to see the horses' faces. So I'll put a link to the article in the show notes because there is actually a photo of it, which is really funny. Um, So they, what they did, they, the reason they did this is because they wanted to investigate, just take the zebra out of the equation for a second and leave it just with the, with the stripes, right? 
That's why they put it on a um, on a horse. Now they basically figured out that one plausible explanation for the stripes is to de- deter blood sucking flies. Ooh. Right? Yeah. Well, I don't like blood sucking flies either. No. So I think good on you, zebras, if that's what you're doing. Genius move. So this is really important to zebras because they can get a lot of fatal diseases um, through blood sucking flies, like something called, oh, this is a tough one, trypanosmiasis. <laughs> is there like a, another way one? to describe that? Uh, not off the top of my head. I think we'll get future Duncan on the case and he'll insert the meaning of that. Um, something called African horse sickness and equine influenza that are spread by horse flies and tsetse flies. Whoa! Trypanosomiasis is a disease caused by a parasite that can cause fever, weakness, and lethargy. Humans can get it too, and it can be fatal. So, also they're vulnerable to insect attacks, and they have really short hair, right? Compared mm-hmm. to other compared to other um, animals like antelopes, for example. So, really susceptible to flies. The other thing is that zebras tend to live in areas with lots of horse flies. In them. So what they did is they videotaped these flies flying around these um, horses that have been cloaked in zebra coats and noticed that when they did this, they became more resistant to flies. They thought, why? Why would that possibly be? Turns out it's because the flies aren't very good at landing on zebra stripes. Oh, is it like some sort of depth perception, like unable yeah. to see where you're going type thing? That's one of the ideas. They called that, I think it was optic flow. So mm-hmm. it's just like their sense of objects moving across their visual field. Um, but one of the other reasons that they came up with is that the stripes might look like a pair of trees, right? So you've got, let's say, you've got two black stripes on either side with a white patch in the middle and the flies might try see those as trees and then try to fly oh. in the middle. And then they just bounce off. That's pretty cool. So, which is pretty funny. Yeah. So, if these stripes seem to confuse the flies, do you reckon I could wear some zebra striped pants to repel mosquitoes? 100%. Yeah. So, they, Ed Yong, genius, right? He actually asked the author of this, um, this paper about that. And he, he said at first, he was like, oh, I'm a bit reticent to, uh, to recommend that. At least I was. But now having done the study, yes. Put on, put on a nice stripy shirt. And you're less likely to get bitten by flies. So we're going to see a surge in zebra print outdoor clothing. I think that's a market we should get into. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of money. Put to a be physics made there. logo on it. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, luckily, I've just I've just stocked up on stripy shirts, mm-hmm. so maybe I can start but selling is it, those. Is it any stripe or is it zebra stripe? Oh, you know, I didn't think about whether it would actually have to be zebra striped. Mm. Probably. Like that irregularity of yeah, stripe might make a difference. Yeah, it sort of blends together and that yeah. sort of Because the ones I've just got are straight lines. That's mm. uh, not going to cut it, is it? No. No. <clears throat> okay. You're not going to make any money off that. Well, folks, if you head to the physics store, we might have some <laughs> separate striped <laughs> T-shirts on sale uh, just in time for summer. Yes. Well, next <laughs> summer, right? <laughs> next summer, yeah. Yep. Kind of missed the boat on that one. So there you go. It's a nice pro tip. Looking forward to seeing you walk into work with zebra striped outfit head to toe if it gets rid of mosquitoes (laughs) i will more than happily wear the the stripiest pants i can find absolutely but the only problem is when you have that um when you have a consistent color say on the areas that aren't covered by zebra stripes then you you are not protected against flies so did they see the horse's heads get an increase in attack not an increase 
per se, but it stayed the same. Okay. Yeah, whereas they didn't try to land on the actual zebra stripes. Or yep. when they tried, they either bounced off or overshot the mark. Yep. So really what you should be doing is, yeah, completely head to toe, toe all the way down to your hands, like maybe some zebra stripe gloves, things. yeah, morph suit thing, and then you're completely immune. I'm set. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Fashion on the, the runway at Milan. <laughs> <laughs> Fashion and function, bring them together. Yes. Awesome. Now, this, this one's is from you as well. Super exciting. Yes. This, this story makes me very, very exciting um, because it involves actual friends of the podcast as well as a physics person actually being there. So it's. Now, are you sure this isn't under embargo? Are we allowed to talk about that? It's, yeah. I. 100%? I believe so. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the story's out. I'll check. <laughs> it's it's one of those things. Okay. So let's do another intro just in case. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, so this story comes from an actual friend of the podcast as well as, a, you know, at one of our fellow workers here at Physics. Um, and it is that uh, up in Winton in Queensland, which is sort of if you look at a map of Queensland and you draw a dot mm -hmm. dead centre. Oh, is that where it is? That's where Winton okay, is. I thought it was more north than that. No, no, so it's like dead centre. I mean, dead centre Queensland is a lot more north, north than, than you might think it yeah. to be. Yeah. Um, so it's like 200 kilometres from Longreach. Um, so it's, it's, it, it is a very isolated rural community, but there is this crazy amount of dinosaur fossils in Winton. And, you know, in the last decade or so, they've dug up a whole lot of dinosaur fossils. Um, one of the first ones was found by David Elliott, uh, mm -hmm. who is a good friend of physics. He is a friend of the podcast. He is. He okay. is a friend of the yeah. podcast. Um, and... You know, recently it's sort of come to the news that they found uh, a sauropod trackway. And what I say by what I mean by sauropod trackway mm -hmm. is it's a whole lot of footprints from big four legged dinosaurs mm -hmm. preserved in rock yeah. and stone. Yeah. Um, now, there is another one of these about 100 kilometers from Winter, which is quite famous, the Dinosaur Causeway. Yep. And they did Heard some really one. groundbreaking studies on predator and prey and how they move about there. Mm -hmm. But this one has more footprints, is bigger, and is better preserved than that. How big is it? Um, there's about 55 metres of footprints, which is about two basketball courts. Yeah, or about half a football field for those of you playing at home. Oh, that too. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a lot of them and there's about 20 tracks made by the sauropods as well as a whole lot of um, ones made by, you know, your smaller mm -hmm. two-legged dinosaurs. Yep. Um, and they are really, really well preserved. In one case, um, you can see the giant thumb claw from That's these awesome. sauropods. Which, I mean, if you think about it, imagine a imagine you stepped in the mud today, mm -hmm. and you could see all five of your toes in the mud. Yep. Imagine someone coming back in a hundred million, million years, years and finding your toes in the mud. That is particularly crazy to think about, actually. It is And insane. who's to say that's not to happen? And I mean, look it, at this magnificent specimen of a human. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> it, it could totally happen, but it's very unlikely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's some really cool stuff happening in, you know, the fossil record in that area of 
Australia at the moment. There's mm. like weathering cycles of the earth and so you've sort of removed all these top layers and there's this layer of fossils that's come to the surface that, you know, Australian Age of Dinosaurs are working to dig up so that they don't get eroded yep. and destroyed. And Australian Age of Dinosaurs is a mu museum, isn't it? Yeah, so it is a museum that's been built to showcase all these dinosaurs oh. that we're finding in Queensland. Was it built specifically after the, what was the other one that you mentioned? Uh, Matilda. And, was it that one? And Banjo, yeah. Okay, awesome. So the story behind Australian Age of Dinosaurs, and I mean, it's one of those yarns. There's a lot of details in Go there on, that's not going to be in there. <laughs> but, you know, David Elliott, farmer, trips over a bone in his paddock, uh, realises it's not a rock but mm. a dinosaur bone, uh, ends up discovering a couple of new dinosaurs. That's amazing. Um, and, you know, some of the first dinosaurs are named Banjo and Matilda. Yep. And there's, like, a really cool reason for that because Winton is Banjo Patterson's hometown. Ah. And so you've got Matilda is in Waltzing Matilda. Yep. And then you've got Banjo. So Matilda is a big sauropod dinosaur. Yep. Um, Dimatinosaurus is her full name. Um, and then you have Banjo, which is an Australovenator, which is, like, an Australian version of the Velociraptor. So they're both two oh, dinosaurs cool. that are unique to Australia. Oh, very um, cool. Prior to that, we only had one Australian dinosaur, which was the Mudaburrosaurus. Also yes, found in that. Queensland. Yeah. Um, not a good-looking dinosaur, that one, if I remember correctly. All dinosaurs are good-looking, Duncan. Mm, not to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> strange face. But, anyway. you know, the cool thing about Australian Age of Dinosaurs is the amount of of fossil record they've been able to pull out of the ground yeah. in the last few years. There's several confirmed new dinosaurs. Just um, from this one or from, the, from or what they've over been Over the doing? last, you know, few years, they, they, I mean, digging for dinosaurs is really quite expensive. Oh, um, and so they dig, the for about, they dig right? for about four weeks of the year. Yeah. Um, and so this, this discovery was actually found several years ago. And what they do is they cover it with plaster and they leave it until they have the money and the time to come back. Oh, now, man. these footprints, uh, there's about 500 tonnes of stuff that they have to excavate. Yep. Now, Jenny, who is our, residor dino our resident <laughs> dinosaur expert, residor. was actually there when they discovered these footprints. That's amazing. And she's been telling us that, you know, there's some really cool stuff happening in Winton that she can't she tell us about for anyone. years. Yep. And then this came on the news and she's like, oh, my gosh, yeah. I can tell everybody yeah. now. And she was super excited. What involvement did she have, do you know? Um, so the cool thing about Australian Age of Dinosaurs is one of the ways they fund their research is that people like you and I who are super excited about dinosaurs can actually pay to be involved <gasps> in the dig. What are we doing here? I don't know. <laughs> uh, the, the digs happen in, like, June, though, so we're not quite in oh, time. We got some, to, okay, we've got well, to I mean, we're then. talking about the middle of Queensland. It's really hot at this time of year. Yeah. Um, so they spend a couple of years, a couple of weeks of the year digging mm -hmm. and pulling stuff out of the ground and searching. Yep. Um, and, you know, people can pay to be involved in that. So that's what she was doing? And, yeah, so she goes up and, help, she goes up and helps on digs every year because she is a huge paleontology fan. Yeah, she's known as the dinosaur lady. Yeah, exactly. Physics, yeah. 100%. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. um, what else have we got on this one? Well, I mean, so far they've removed about a quarter of the footprints. Um, but Is the location secret? So it's just near Winton, but we don't know where? Yeah, most of the locations that these dinosaur fossils have been found are secret because don't you don't want people going in and looting them. Absolutely. Um, in America, it's a huge issue. Really? Yeah. Why don't they keep them secret? Um, well... There's a law in America that says anything that's found on your land is your property. Oh, yeah, okay. And so what's actually been happening is these fossil hunters are paying ranchers, so farmers, like five or $10,000 to be able to dig up parts of their land where they suspect there's fossils. Yeah. And then those, those fossil diggers, they keep those 
specimens once they find them, mm-hmm. and then they auction them off to the highest bidder. Sell them to museums. Yeah. Slash well, private collectors. The, the fortunate part about that is a lot of them are not going to museums. A lot of oh, them really? are ending up in private collections where science can't study can't them. Actually, oh, that's annoying. You know, there's a really famous uh, dinosaur, uh, mm-hmm. which is Sue, yep. who is at the Field Museum in Chicago. Sue and, is a T-Rex, is she not? Uh, yeah, so she is the most complete dinosaur, complete Tyrannosaurus rex uh, fossil ever found. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it went on the open market and she was the first dinosaur to go on the open market at auction. Um, and Good it Lord. cost something like $7 million oh, I pay it. to keep that dinosaur in um, the museum. But, you know, they had investment from a whole lot of other people to keep it there. Yeah, right. And they were up against a private bidder. Really? Yeah. We don't know who the private bidder is. Oh, I think there's there's a new story out there with that private bidder's name in it. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's T-Rex skulls selling for a million dollars. Yeah, that is and crazy. And just going into people's lounge rooms. Surely you would actually, say, give it to a museum first and say, look, study this. When you're done, I'll take it back um, and In put some it in cases, room. you've got some really, like, altruistic people buying this stuff where they are sort of saying, oh, yeah, you can come and have a look at my, my bones. Um, but, <laughs> so kind. But in other cases, they're just going into private collections yeah. never to see the light of day. And also, we don't know if they're being taken care of properly. Yeah, absolutely, because they probably don't have the expertise you know, to be the able to is, do that. It's, it's, it's kind of a catch-22, though, mm. because, you know, if you think about, you know, how things weather away and rock erodes away, um, you know, these fossil hunters are going out and pulling this stuff out of the ground so it can be taken care of. So if these fossil hunters weren't out there, this stuff would erode it away would erode. and get mm. lost. So maybe. And so it's, it's like if it was in the ground, it would erode away. But if these guys sell it, it goes into private collections now. Or at I, least it's a bit better off. Yeah. But the thing is, I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure about that because it may have survived 65, 100 million years. I think it'll survive a little bit longer in the ground than to go into the private collection of someone who doesn't doesn't really know what they're doing. Uh, Yeah, but what if it's never found? If there's no incentive, there's no economic incentive Mm. to go out and dig up these bones Mm. unless they can sell them. I really want to be a fossil hunter now, though. Isn't that a cool job title? It is a pretty cool job. You should go up to our friends at Australian Age of Dinosaurs. Now, actually, if you want to know more about Australian Age of Dinosaurs, Ben, on our sister podcast, the Physics Ed podcast, uh, interviewed Stephen Rumbold, who's their education quarter and lab supervisor, um, on episode 39. It was so, episode 39. That's about a year and a bit ago, I think. That yeah, he yeah, that it was one. a while yeah. ago. But if you are interested in hearing more about them, so definitely look it up. Stephen was withholding this information from us. He knew what was going on. Totally. Stephen, friend of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Love your work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the other interesting thing about this is um, I read the press release uh, when they discovered this. And about half of it was about the fact that it'll bring lots of tourism to Winton. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, oh, just just tell me about the dinosaurs, right? But fair point, it will actually bring a fair amount of tourism back into Queensland and specifically into these rural towns where they are kind of struggling a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's a positive to come out of this as well. Yeah. And it's a big economic incentive as well. Winton has become this little dinosaur town yeah, because great. the whole community is finding dinosaurs on their properties and so the whole community is being invested in this, oh, which is really cool. Wouldn't it be great to find a fossil in your backyard? It would be I, great. I almost did once when I was probably about six or seven. I was climbing on some rocks near my near my house and I found uh, this shape. It looks like a tiny turtle. And I was like, I think I found a fossil. Really, it was just like sort of a divot in the rock that looked like the, the shape of a turtle. And my lovely, kind mum 
was like, let's take a photo of it and send it to a museum and see what they see what they say. So he took a photo of it and they sent uh, they actually sent a letter back and they were like, sorry, it's not a fossil. But I was I just think it's so sweet that they took the time to do that. But I think you know people who are working in museums want kids to mm-hmm. to be looking and want to acknowledge these kids that are interested in science and interested in discovery. And I think it's great that they acknowledge that. Yeah, it's really cool. Thanks, Mum. All right, I've got one more thing to talk about, Holly, which is the fact of the week. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. It actually comes with its own theme music, um, <laughs> so you don't need to do it. Uh, now, what I always like to do is I hide the fact of the week from our, inside of our notes document so that you don't read it. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. The fact of the week is it is impossible to burp in space. <laughs> Isn't okay. that a good fact? <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty good and fact. I'm just thinking about it. I've been I've been reading a lot of science fiction lately uh-huh. and sort of so is is it okay. Yeah. My Have question a guess about is, why. Is it impossible to burp in space or is it impossible to burp in zero gravity? Are the things not one and the same? No. Because in space we can have simulated gravity. Ah, I see. So, like, the 2001 rotating... Yeah, the rotating drum on spaceships. Like, that's in space. Is that a real thing right now? No. Uh, I mean, the the theory exists. We don't have have any need to build the technology just yet because we're not sending humans on really, really, really long trips. Mm. Um, But, you know, if we were sending humans to, like, Mars or something, we would definitely have one of those rotating drums. Yeah. A lot of um, power required to, to do something like that, because they have to spin really, really fast. Uh, yeah, they do have to spin quite fast, but if we've got, like, nuclear reactor technology in there, it's it's not too bad. Not too much? Okay. Mm. Well, regardless, it, it, you're correct when you say it's to do with zero gravity. Okay, so let's take the space part out of the equation. It's impossible to burp in zero gravity uh-huh. because gravity pulls things straight down, mm-hmm. and so when there's no gravity, gas and liquids in your stomach would not separate. Yep. Okay? So the gas can't, like, separate out to come back up and create a burp. That is why. At least it sort of can happen, but rather than being a burp, it would be what this article describes as a vomit. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you're not going to drink Coca-Cola in space. Wouldn't recommend it. No. No, because no. as soon as you do, it's not just the... Uh, the fizz that comes back up, it's everything else that you've had. But think about this. There's also some really interesting implications there for long-distance space travel. Okay. So, like, if you cut yourself on Earth, one of the reasons that that cut is able to heal mm. is that gravity helps those wounds drain. Yep. But if you're in zero gravity, for the same reason that that burp won't come out, like, all the gunk can't leave your wound and, Ugh. you know, like, a small cut could put your life at risk. How do they deal with that, do you know? Uh, well, we don't really send anyone away for that long. Surely accidents would happen. Mm-hmm. Or you mean on, like, the International Space yeah. Station or something? Yeah. What would they? what would they do? Just patch it up <sighs> and hope for the best? I think, you know, there's Put probably some, some protocol and pressure and a draining protocol. Yeah. I think that's something that future Duncan should look up. All right. Thanks yep. for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to be calling up NASA. Like, have you guys thought about this? They're like, no. What do we do? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do some searching and get back to you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yep. perfect. Well, hey, the medical kit on the ISS is basic. It contains a first aid kit, a large book of medical conditions, a defibrillator, a portable ultrasound, a device for looking into the eye, and two litres of saline. A better option for serious conditions would be to return the patient to Earth 
in the Soyuz spacecraft, which is a journey of around three and a half hours. But on the Soyuz, they could experience G-forces of up to 5G, which isn't fun even when you're totally healthy. Way! All right, well, I think, Holly, that that might be a wrap on Physics Twist for this week. What do you think? Sounds good to me. Wonderful. Thank you for joining me. And don't forget that you can uh, meet the wonderful people of physics at your school vacation centre or birthday party. Just go to physics.com.au. Also, if you like this, you can rate us on iTunes. It really helps us out. We'll be back next week with another one of our educators from physics. In the meantime, if you want to hear some thoroughly thought-provoking discussions with leading education providers and other hot content, you can check out the Physics Ed podcast by the bouncy and benevolent Ben Newsom. Catch you next week.